In your Bibles, please, with Mr. Suarez to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt." And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation." And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mount. And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither it is the voice of them that cry for being overcome. The noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, 
What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, there's a lot that happened in that chapter. Uh, we have here an interruption, right, from the, uh, the communion which Moses and the Lord had upon Mount Sinai from the previous chapters which we have read. An interruption arising out of the people's machinations to idolatry. The chapter begins by stating how the people note, right, how long Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain since going up. You may recall uh, that they didn't have a definite time as to when Moses should return, right? Or at least we're not told explicitly, I don't think. And it was beginning to seem as though he should never come down, right? And they never make progress as a people. Perhaps he died up there, right? They might say, and we're going to die ourselves if we keep waiting down here, right, as a people, if we don't start moving and doing something. So they collude together and agree in putting forward a demand to Aaron. They say, up, make us gods, which shall go before us, they say. The word in our translation, as some of you uh, may know for gods, right, in Hebrew is the noun Elohim, and that noun is a plural noun, which, depending on the context, right, could refer to the true God, or it can refer to gods, right, of plural gods. Uh, and when it refers to the true God, it has in reference the plural of God's majesty. And so here in this chapter, it appears that they're asking for Moses to make for them the true God. The reason? For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we what, right? We know not what is become of him. Right? It's perhaps surprising in reading this inspired narrative 
how quickly these Jews seem to shift away from Moses. As Stephen says later in Acts 7.39, they, quote, would not obey, but thrust him, that is Moses, from them, and in their hearts turn back again into Egypt. Not only do the people thrust him away in their minds so as to thrust away God's prophet, so as to perhaps in time consider setting up a new leader or prophet, but at the heart of their request and demand is for an image, right? A representation of God that they can measure with their senses and thereby confirm their confidence in the true God. This Moses whom we can see is gone and we don't know if or when he's coming back. We need something we can see and know that Elohim is not departed from us, right? And he can go before us and encourage us, right? If we need some encouragement, we could just look to him, right? Or look to him through it and go forward confidently. Sadly, Aaron is complicit in the people's request. He concedes, perhaps, out of fear, or even coming under some of the same persuasions, Uh, perhaps even out of pretext of maintaining order while Moses is away and keeping the people interested and motivated in serving Jehovah as a people. Whatever it was, we recognize that he did not hold up in trial. No, he concedes and tells them in verse 2 to bring all the people's golden earrings, right? And in verse 4, he fashioned it into a molten calf. That is, he made this image of a young calf or ox or bull or similar out of melted gold. Why a golden calf? Well, the calf was a symbol of strength in those times and even perhaps related to the worship which they had seen and learned in Egypt uh, that involved a god in the form of a bull. And so... There is here an assimilation, right? an appropriation of carnal reasoning and false religion into the service and religion of the true God. An assimilation and synthesizing that still troubles the people of God today. Attempting to Christianize those things which God will not be served by, nor has he commanded. Consider further for a moment where the material of this calf was sourced from. It says, from the earrings of their wives, sons and daughters, right? The material of this calf was sourced from otherwise indifferent matter which was among them, on them. And from this we take warning, right? That the danger to veer away into idolatry and away from God's prescription is ever so near us. Never think, children, adults, because you are in a Reformed Presbyterian church, that because you are raised in a covenanted Christian family, that you sing the Psalms exclusively, that you observe family worship morning and evening, you privately do so on your own morning and evening, you observe Sabbath worship, all things which are great and good, but never think that because of that, that idolatry is something very far away in some land elsewhere. No, the danger of idolatry is so very near us. The danger whereby we set an excessive attachment to something other than God and his word in our allegiance. So much so that the Apostle John concludes his first epistle in the New Testament, right? Then he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In verse 4 of our passage, the people appear to be elated by this calf, saying, These be thy gods, that is Elohim, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Here again, they refer to Elohim as the one who delivered them out of Egypt and appear to mirror, right, what is said in the preface of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am Jehovah Elohim, 
which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Aaron, in verse 5, not content to cease further involvement or putting the repentant foot down to say no more, right? He builds an altar before the calf and made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord that is Jehovah. It is apparent from this that Aaron and even the people believe that they are serving the true God in what they're doing. The image is a representation to them, to assist the people, right? to encourage them. Even as a husband or wife may carry a picture right, of their spouse in their wallet wherever they go to encourage them, at least as some modern image makers argue. It's an aid to devotion, they say. We're not worshipping the figure, we're worshipping the God of the figure. And many more like arguments which some of these Jews may have entertained in their day. Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah, Aaron says. Tomorrow is a holy day to our God. To observe the solemn ceremonies of our religion to our God here at this altar. So in verse 6, they rose up early on the morrow, right? There was diligence, earnestness, sincerity even in their errors. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. There was a measure of true elements of worship in their assembly. And then the people sat down to eat and to drink. They had communion and fellowship in their worship. And then rose up to play. They began dancing, celebrating, singing, making music, and surely many pleasant things, giving way to carnal worship, which had and still has a show Right, a pretense, right, an appeal to human wisdom, even in our own day. In verse 7, we shift back to the top of the mountain where the Lord informs Moses what is happening back among the people. He tells Moses, thy people have corrupted themselves. Here begins a peculiar interaction between Moses and the Lord where the Lord frames his words right, in such a way that has puzzled uh, some. The first of these questions is, why does the Lord say, thy people have corrupted themselves? Why doesn't he say, my people have corrupted themselves? Well, it appears here the Lord is emphasizing his renouncing of them. As he will say in Deuteronomy 32.5, right? They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. And by saying thy people, right? Perhaps even revealing their dullness, ungratefulness after all that Moses by the Lord has worked before them. And so offering shortly thereafter, right in verse 9, to create a new people for Moses. But further, we must understand that the Lord in this exchange is trying Moses. He's revealing to him matters to test him and to show him wonderful things about himself and his redemptive purposes. The Lord here says in verse 9, I have seen this people and behold It is a stiff-necked people. Learn from this that there's no hiding from the Lord. He sees beyond the facades, right? The masks, the smiles. And knows the depths of your soul more than you do. He sees if it's well with you or not. Let me alone, the Lord says in verse 10, that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Notice here, with whom God is angry with and with whom he is not angry with. He is angry with the people and not with Moses, offering to make of him a great nation. And by revealing to Moses with whom he is pleased by, he as it were shows Moses 
what would be involved, right? If he's to stay his hand from consuming the people. That is the intercession of him whom God is pleased with. And in this is a figure, right? A lesson for them and for our need of one greater than Moses, who has no sin whatsoever, who is altogether righteous, right? Who may stand in the gap between God and man and intercede by his righteousness, his work and person for the people of the Lord, satisfying divine justice, reconciling them to him, right? Understand this as a lesson for the need of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. In verse 11, then Moses intercedes for the Lord to repent from this proposed course of action. Notice the basis upon which he pleads. He says, why should thy wrath wax hot against thy people? That is, against those whom thou didst call thy people. And against those whom thou hast brought forth from Egypt with great power. Against those whom thou didst show thy great works of redemption to. What will the Egyptians say of thee? Upon hearing that thou didst destroy the people thou didst bring out of Egypt. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, and the promise made to them to multiply their seed as the stars of heaven, and the inheritance promised them. He points continually back to God's word, his reputation, his attributes, his works, his promises, faithfulness. And it's a wonderful example and encouragement in our own prayers to pray and appealing to the same things. Upon Moses' intercession, we read in verse 14 that the Lord repented. Are we to gather from this that the Lord changes his mind? That God purposes one thing and says, Oh, no, sorry, no, that was a bad idea. Never mind, let's change course. Well, that would be a silly right, understanding of Scripture. Uh, and a clear contradiction to the abundance of Scripture that we have going in the complete opposite direction. Right? God is so far from changing his mind and thinking one thing now and then thinking another thing next. Moses himself, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, will record from Balaam the prophet in Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should buy, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God hasn't changed his mind, but he's revealing things at times in such a fashion to test and show his people greater spiritual realities thereby. Even the need for the person and work of Christ, as we have said, and the vindicatory justice that must consume sinners apart from the application of his saving work to them. Recall farther, right, that these exchanges that we read of in this chapter are not in the context of a covenant of works, but an administration of the covenant of grace, whose mediator is Christ. In verse 15, Moses then begins his descent into the people carrying two tables with writing on both sides. Writing which was the writing of God, it says, graven upon the tables, a monument to God's covenant with his people. Joshua, we read, is there, Moses' minister, right? Uh, he think, he's uncertain in what he hears. He thinks he hears war, and Moses corrects him. No, that's the voice of singing, right? The noise of singing and music. When Moses arrives and sees what is occurring, he's so angry. He casts the tables out of his hand and breaks them beneath the mount so as to show Israel's faithlessness and breaking covenant with their God. Moses grinds the calf into powder and makes the people drink it in their water to show them right, what that calf and all carnal worship is. It's to be regarded, regarded equivalent to human waste right, and to be eliminated, removed from among them. 
Aaron is questioned, verse 21, by Moses, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron blames the people and appears to excuse his part in fashioning the calf and attempts to cover for the people to lessen, like Moses, cool down, right, um, his anger. The same Aaron in verse 25 is said to have made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. And it's not necessary to understand that they were absolutely naked, right? but they were dressed shamefully and immodestly in their calf worship. Upon seeing that, the people were so, Moses stands in the gate and says, Who is on the Lord's side? Right? To which the sons of Levi are said to assemble and are commanded to slay every man his brother, companion, and neighbor. Who is it that they're charged to kill? Well, certainly not all, right? as there will be none afterwards, and it would be kind of contrary to Moses' intercession that we've read of earlier. But in verse 28 we read about 3,000 men are said to have been killed that day. And it seems that it would have been those Levi, uh, that, that the Levites found active in calf worship or maybe chief leaders in it. And by such an act in verse 29, they consecrated themselves to the Lord for his service. Neither son or brother or family and friend were dearer to them than the Lord. As Jesus says, right, he that loveth father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Congregation, let us not ask who is on my side or who is on my family's side. Or who's on my church's side? Or who's on Texas' side? Or on the United States' side? But who's on the Lord's side? And from there, give ourselves in Christ zealously to serve the Lord's side, the Lord's cause, the Lord's kingdom in our places and callings. Moses returns shortly thereafter up in the mount, confessing the people's sin, both in measure of its aggravation and particularity. They have, in verse 31, sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. If thou wilt forgive their sin, in verse 32, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, Moses says, appearing to offer himself in the place of the people. But the Lord responds in verse 33, that whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Those who are faithless and break covenant shall receive the recompense. Him will I blot out of my book. The chapter there closes with the Lord recommissioning of Moses to proceed and leading the people to the place told them, and yet warns of chastisement, right? Real chastisement, discipline in the form of a plague for their most recent faithlessness. And that ends our time in chapter 32 of Exodus.